Wouldn't it be great if there were a pocket-sized guide that could help you sleep, focus, act, or be better? Well, there is. And if you have 10 minutes, Headspace can change your life. I know because it's definitely helped me too. Headspace is your daily dose of mindfulness in the form of guided meditations in an easy-to-use app. Headspace is the only meditation app advancing the field of mindfulness and meditation through clinically validated research. So whatever the situation, Headspace can really help you feel better. If you're overwhelmed, Headspace has three-minute SOS meditations for you. Need some help falling asleep? They can help you with wind-down sessions their members swear by. And for parents, Headspace even has stuff that you could do with your kids too. And their approach to mindfulness can help you reduce stress, improve sleep, boost focus, and increase your overall sense of well-being. Like I said, I use Headspace as well. I used to use it back in the day, then I got off of it for a while to use another tool. But then, honestly, I came back to it, and it's even better. The voicing, the meditation, it definitely, even just with five minutes a day, it really changes everything for me. It's backed by 25 published studies on its benefits, 600,000 five-star reviews, and over 60 million downloads. Incredible. So you deserve to feel happier, and Headspace is meditation made simple. So go to headspace.com slash SPI. That's headspace.com slash SPI for a free one-month trial with access to Headspace's full library of meditations for every situation. This is the best deal offered right now. Head to headspace.com slash SPI today. Sometimes when you're recording a podcast episode, you just know that the guest you have on and the subject matter is one that you're gonna wanna give a warning to the audience to in terms of, well, you're gonna wanna make sure you have a pen and paper or your notepad or something out because you're gonna wanna take notes. This is one of those episodes. We're talking today with Ray Edwards from rayedwards.com, a fan favorite from episode 300 where I brought a bunch of people on, people from my mastermind group, The Green Room as it's also known, but Ray Edwards stood out because he can help you write copy that sells. What is copy? If you've never heard that before, that's like the words you write that help people take action. This is if you're selling an idea. This is if you're selling a product. If you're if you're selling a call to action, doesn't really matter. This episode is going to help you. So stick around. Cue the music. Welcome to the Smart Passive Income Podcast, where it's all about working hard now, so you can sit back and reap the benefits later. And now your host, his family has a goal to visit every Disney park in the world, Pat Flynn. Oh man, I'm juiced up. I hope you are excited too. If you don't know who I am, my name is Pat Flynn. I'm here to help you make more money, save more time, and help more people too. And sometimes we do that with just me talking about my experiences and things I do to make things work online. And other times we bring guests on the show, like today's guest, Ray Edwards from rayedwards.com. I've already introduced him, so let's just dive right in. Here he is. Get ready. Ray, welcome back to the Smart Passive Income Podcast. How are you doing? Thank you. You must really like me. You have me back. And we're going to have you back again, I'm sure, because your episode on copywriting back in October of 2015, which was, my gosh, nearly three years ago, uh, it was one of a, it was a crowd favorite because it gave some very specific strategies and frameworks for creating copy that converts. So we're gonna talk a little bit more about copy today, but I would just love to get a quick, you know, couple minutes on on what's going on in your life. How, how are things going? Um, things are going great. Uh, how else do people answer that question? Uh, <laughs> was, does anybody ever say, everything sucks right now? You do, and then you, you hear that, and then you're like, I'm sorry, I don't know what to say next either, yeah, but... I want to talk to you now. I'm, I'm glad things are great. What, what has been so great about what's happening lately? Like, what's what's new in Ray Edwards' land? Um, well, one thing is that I finally realized the power of having a team, a real team of employees. So we've hired what feels like a lot of people. Um, and on, on one hand, it feels like a lot of responsibility. I bet you feel some of this. You have team members that you think about the fact that, well, I'm providing their income. Yeah. Um, I mean, they are, they're working for it, but ultimately as the entrepreneur, I think all of us think from time to time about the people who depend on us. But the uh, the other side of that coin is the enormous amount of freedom to explore new ideas, to do things that I couldn't otherwise do because my time is not occupied doing stuff I shouldn't be doing. It's not really in my zone of genius. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm not saying that I'm a genius. I'm saying we all have a zone of genius. Um, comes from the book, The Big Leap by Gay Hendricks. It's just your special um, 
ability, your unique ability, as Dan Sullivan would call it. So I'm able to to stay in that area, and um, I, I'm I'm kind of surprised and delighted, Pat, at the people who've come on board who are um, first fans of the work that we're doing, and they want to be part of that. And so it feels like we're all part of a cause. That we're all on a mission. It feels less like I'm hiring people and they're working quote for me. And it's more like we're on a mission together to accomplish something. And that's, that's the greatest thing that's happening right now. I mean, the, the, we're making good money, good revenue. We've got some interesting clients that we're working with. That's all fun. And it's wonderful. I don't, I don't mean to downplay it, but this feeling of being on a team is out of this world. That's great. What is the mission that you're all kind of working toward? To end poverty. That's a huge mission. So, I mean, I don't, feel, I don't feel like we're going to do it by ourselves. Um, but I, I really got clear on this as I began thinking about, you, you mentioned the book. I think you mentioned the book that I'm writing uh, or have written, and it's going to be published after the first of the year. It's called Permission to Prosper. Mm-hmm. And um, it's, it's about just that. It's about having permission to be prosperous and to understand the ramifications that that when you prosper, other people prosper. Your prosperity blesses everyone if you think about it the right way. It doesn't mean you have to give your money away either. I mean, I know that you're a benefactor to charities, and that's I think that's fantastic. We should all do that as we feel moved to do it. But I would like people to understand that just doing business with integrity is in and of itself serving humanity and helping to end poverty. And the answer to poverty, I think, is not more government programs. It's empowering people to create value and receive value in exchange, which we mm. often call money. Amen to that. Now, you had mentioned an interesting word there related to prosperity, and that's permission. Why Why do we need permission to do this? Don't we have the ability to do it right now anyway? Well, we do, but um, most of us in Western society, at the very least, have been trained under the Judeo-Christian ethic, quote-unquote, and really under the Puritan ethic. That's what this country was founded on. And that ethic kind of carried with it some baggage that taught us, on the one hand, we should work hard and be industrious and be productive, but on the other hand, it also taught us that money is the root of all evil. And that's not even the actual quote. The actual quote is, the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil meaning it's at the root of all sorts of different bad things, but it's not the root of all evil. And so we have these conflicting inner beliefs that like rich people don't get to heaven and rich people only get rich by taking advantage of the poor and the 1% are the 1% because they took stuff away from the 99%. None of those things are true, but if you're an entrepreneur, think about how difficult it is for you to have those conflicting beliefs. It's like you're driving with one foot on the gas and one foot on the brakes, and that is not good for the car. No. It's a great analogy. I cannot wait to bring you back on the show to talk about that book. We're going to help you push it out there because it's it's very important. And, you know, you, you and I, uh, as many people know, are in a mastermind group. Speaking of, I remember the last time you were on the show, it actually wasn't episode 182. It was episode 300 when the green room was here on the show. Yes. And you were just in a brief moment in that. We talked a little bit about your coffee shop and some of the other things you were up to. So that's why it feels like it wasn't that long ago because it actually wasn't that long ago. That's correct. <laughs> but you are the future guest here today. And I cannot wait to talk to you more in the future about that book and uh, help you push it out there. But t- for today, let's talk about sales copy again, specifically copy for sales pages and kind of what happens when a person lands on that page. And we talked again a little bit about this in the previous uh, conversation we had in episode 182, talking about your pastor model. And I think, well, actually, let's let's start with that, your framework, just a quick overview of that. That's actually been really helpful for me in the past couple of years because I finally now have my own products to sell. But the interesting thing I've learned after now having my own products and understanding the pastor model and what kind of goes in the selling process I've taken some of what I've learned about selling my own products back into the affiliate marketing world and selling other people's products uh, from understanding more about the problems that people are having, which is where the P comes from, and the A, which is my favorite, which is to amplify that problem. Like, what happens if you don't take care of this right now? And I use that now in affiliate marketing. It's so powerful. So can, can we do a quick overview of the pastor model, that acronym, and then we'll kind of dive a little bit deeper into sales page specifically, everything from how long does it need to be and all those technical things versus 
kind of how do we best get people to click on that buy button? So we'll, we'll start with the pastor model. Okay. So pastor is an acronym and it's P-A-S-T-O-R. And I chose the word purposely not to make you feel like you need to be a preacher, but the original connotation of the word was to shepherd. And the shepherd's job is to care for the flock and protect them and feed them and make sure they're safe from predators. And my feeling is I wanted to set the stage for us feeling that way about our customers, that we are shepherding them to a good decision that's in their best interest. Not that we're trying to twist their arm or manipulate them or mind voodoo them into buying something they don't need. So with that heart space that we're coming from, then we go through the letters of the word pastor for our framework for copy. It starts with the person, the problem, and the pain. And so the person obviously is all about knowing your customer really well, inside out. That takes work. It takes actually getting to know them. People ask me, how do I get to know my customer? Well, how do you get to know anybody? You spend time with them. You talk to them. You listen to them, more importantly. And then the problem that you're helping solve, you need to understand the nature of that. And it needs to be the problem as they perceive it and the pain as they perceive it. So the one of the examples I like to give is if you're selling a weight loss solution, you may think the problem is they're overweight, so they're unhealthy, and they're at risk for cardiovascular disease and diabetes and a host of other problems. But that's not what they're feeling. What they're feeling is they're unhappy with the way they look. They look in the mirror and they think to themselves, I'm fat. I look disgusting. I don't want to go out in public. I don't want to date. I don't want to go to the swimming pool. I don't want to take off my shirt. I really feel bad about the way I look. I'm ashamed. That's at the core of what they're feeling. So understanding the pain as they're experiencing it is something people miss a lot. Mm -hmm. And then amplifying that pain, as you just mentioned, amplifying the consequences of not solving the problem. What's going to happen if you don't take care of this? Well, let me tell you, this is what the future is going to look like. I've seen it a thousand times. You've seen it yourself. Ask yourself, isn't this true? This is what's going to happen. And you walk them through that. And when you can get them to the place where they really see their future, having not solved the problem, most people are ready to buy at that point. We continue on and tell them the story of how we arrived at the solution. And often there's a story of struggle and finding the solution and then systemizing the knowledge. I mean, your story, your journey is like a classic example of that. You had a problem. You were out of work. You looked for a solution. You decided to create this passive income model of doing business. You created these niche sites. Uh, you solved the, that problem and you created systems that other people could follow. That's the classic storyline. It's really the hero's journey. All stories are the hero's journey. And then T is for testimony and transformation. So these are people talking about how they've used your product, how they've used your affiliate training or whatever you happen to be offering, or how they've used the affiliate products that you talked them into buying and how they've benefited from it. And they're giving their testimonials saying that was a great idea. I mean, Pat recommending to me to get Bluehost as my hosting company has been a, the best decision I've ever made. I had problems. Bluehost came in and helped me. Those are testimonials. And then there's the offer, which is people think it's about, well, this is the thing you get. It's a box of stuff. It costs $100. That's not the offer. That's a description of the cost of the offer. The offer is really about the transformation, like the peace of mind you're going to get from having a good, solid hosting company or the, uh, the peace of mind you're going to get from having passive income rolling in and you don't have to worry about starting the month at zero every month. You've got income starting before the month even begins that you can count on. And then the R is the requesting a response. That's the buy button. It's asking people to buy, saying, this is what you do now to get the thing I just told you about. And that's pastor. I love that. I wasn't sure if there was an S at the end for the longest time uh, until I picked up your book again, uh, Coffee That Sells, which is also a great book. We'll have all these resources in the resource section, obviously, in the show notes. Um, but I thought maybe there was an S in there for something like scarcity. And I'd love for you to talk about this a little bit before we get into more of the weeds of the sales page and the purpose of it. I had a lot of sort of demons in my head related to injecting scarcity into offers, especially with something like a digital product, which, well, yeah, you say there's only 100 spots, but for real, it's like a digital product. You could sell as many as you want. And yeah. and, and like I, I was... Like that kind of thinking, especially for for my audience here listening, a lot of them have online courses, ebooks. Scarcity isn't something that comes easy unless you you literally say, you know, I'm just I don't have enough of them to give away, which is not really possible for digital products. Is scarcity important? And if so, how do how do how do we inject it into this whole process? Well, I think urgency is important. 
And that may or may not involve scarcity. Ah, okay. I like that. And how do we make it urgent? Well, if it's a digital product, it makes no sense to say, we only have a hundred of these, so you better buy now. Everybody knows that's baloney. Um, even if everybody didn't know it, you would know it, and that would be enough to stop you. But what can be true is you may have limited enrollment windows. So if you're doing like a live sort of semi-live coaching program where you have pre-recorded trainings and then each week you do coaching calls where you're live and interactive with people, uh, you can legitimately say, if, if this is how you do it, like for 10 weeks, we're going to have these coaching calls that go along with the program. So we open it up like a university college course and we close registration before class begins so we can concentrate on the students that we have just brought into the program. So that introduces urgency. Like I have to enroll by Friday or they're going to close the doors. I won't be able to enroll again for a year or six months or whatever the time period is. Mm-hmm. That's um that's not like false scarcity, which I, I hate false scarcity. I really think people should understand that most people are not going to fall for that anymore. And it's just a, just don't do it. Um, that, there's one form of urgency and scarcity that people don't talk about enough. And I think that's the, underlining and illustrating the cost of not buying what you're offering. And that may sound like amplifying the problem, but there's an element of urgency in it that every day you wait is a day you live without the solution. So if your solution helps business owners make extra revenue for their business, for instance, and you can get them to figure out what that number is. Like I may say, well, gosh, Pat, if I used your method to run my online store, I'd probably make an extra $10,000 a month that I'm not making right now. Well, it's easy for you to then say, so multiply that $10,000 times 12. That gives you $120,000. That's what it's costing you to not solve this problem with this solution that I have. So the question isn't really whether you want to buy this. The question is, how many years do you want to keep paying $120,000 for having this problem? Mm. And that introduces urgency because... Every day I delay is money lost. Wow. I like that a lot. Thank you, Ray. What about cost or price fluctuation urgency? Price will go up soon, or this coupon is only available for this amount of time. I kind of hover back and forth between, yeah, you know, you know, increasing and decreasing the price is a great strategy in some cases, and other times I'm like, no, I don't want to. I don't want to train my audience that like discounts are normal. I don't want to be a JC Penny. How do you, how do you balance that? Yeah, I think uh, a lot of it depends on how you feel about it personally. Mm-hmm. Um, but I I do some of that. Well, we don't do discounts, but we do uh, the prices increasing at a certain date. But there's one thing I always do. I feel like that's usually so arbitrary that my response as a consumer is why. why is it Friday at midnight that it changes? So I just tell them the truth. I say, look, you may be asking yourself, why Friday at midnight? That seems arbitrary. Well, it is. Except I, my job is to motivate you to do what's in your best interest. I believe getting this product is in your best interest. I know if I put a deadline on it, you'll take it more seriously. So that's why we've engineered it so that the price goes up at midnight on Friday. I'm trying to motivate you to make a decision. So nobody feels icky about that because you've been totally above board with why you're doing this. Yeah, I mean, you're literally telling them the strategy. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So pastor you, you include urgency in there. Not, not quite as nice as pastors, but I I'll take it. I like urgency versus scarcity. Um, I think that's a good overview. Now, does that give us the framework for a sales page? Do we literally go P or three P's? A-S-T-O-R, and perhaps you kind of is involved in there somewhere as well, or is, is, is a sales page specifically the the page on a, on a website that sells our product, is that structured differently than, than this? Um, I, I start with the framework, the pastor framework. Mm-hmm. I, mean, I literally open a document and type the words P-A-S-T-O-R down the side of the document and start building my paragraphs. Um. So it's, to me, it's the overarching framework of any persuasive message. And there are other elements that are not mentioned in the pastor framework that need to be included, like authority or credibility pieces. Uh, but you could say that falls under testimonial, so it's a kind of proof. Mm-hmm. Um, there are 
bullet points. We don't talk about bullet points in the pastor framework, but bullet points are very important. And what's interesting to me is I, in my course, I have a, I think it's 15 elements of a winning sales letter. It's also in my book. So if you don't want to get my course, you can get my book for like seven bucks on Amazon. Um, and I, I've seen a lot of changes in this area right now. Uh, Pat, I've seen, I used to tell people long copy always wins. In fact, I think I've told you that. Mm-hmm. Um, it doesn't always win anymore. It often wins. It's often what's, re- what's required. But today's audiences are more sophisticated than ever before. And it's more important than ever before that we learn to speak to them in their language. So I think your audience, for instance, has a much different lingo and vibe than some other online business experts audiences might have. So your approach might not work so well with them, but for your audience, if you tried to do the things that they do, these other people who sell how to be in business online stuff, um, it would fall flat. And so the sensitivity to how to deliver the sales page message is very important. And so that often means, like I think you have a certain style on your website. It is, um, I would describe it as hip, cool, lots of white space, um, punchy, to the point, direct without being harsh. So your sales pages need to be the same way. And they are, from what I've seen, they're very much that way. Um, and they include all the, all the pieces of the pastor framework, and they include all the components. There's, there's two things happening here. There's the overarching framework of the copy, pastor. And then there's the components of how you construct the whole thing. So that gets into headlines and subheadlines and um, bullet points and call out boxes. And some of that is more design, but it's part of the overall thing that happens to people when they come to make the sales decision. When it comes to the headline, which is, I would assume, the first thing people see and read when they're on the page, this is at the top, the bold words. What are some of the biggest mistakes that we're all making that we should avoid? In other words, what should we be doing with the headline? Because there's so many. I when when you're when when you've got the framework, but then you got to start actually putting pen to paper or start typing. I mean, so, sometimes that that headline is just that's what stops people. Like yeah. that, like you know, you the typical advice would be okay. Like worry about the headline later. Get all the other things filled out. But I mean, it's it just often stops people in their tracks. What can we do to approach the headline in a more fascinating and more interesting way that we can actually get it done without stopping. I, I often give the advice that you should write the headline last after you write a whole bunch of bullet points. But I usually also tell the whole story. And the whole story is the best headlines I've written are ones where I wrote the headline before I wrote anything else. Um, and it usually comes out of, I'm doing research, I'm reading uh, other people's copy about similar products, I'm reading my own copy that I've written so far about my product, I'm reading about my market, I'm looking at books that relate to the subject matter, and when you throw all of that thought, those ideas, into your subconscious, it begins to mix those things up, and there, I think there comes a convergence point where you start having some original ideas. Um, like, for a, a recent workshop we did, I I asked myself, what is the truest thing about my business right now that people are fascinated with, that they'd like to learn in a workshop? And the truest thing is, how did you get to a million dollars in revenue as a writer? And you're not like a bestseller. You're not like Stephen King or something like that. So I, as I was thinking about this, I was journaling about it one day and I, I, I wrote down courage. I realized, well, it takes courage to get there because there's all kinds of psychological baggage. I don't need to unpack all that for you right now, but just that was the overwhelming feeling I had. So my headline for that copy was, do you have the courage to become a million dollar writer? And that resonated with me. And so I sat down and banged out the rest of that copy in an afternoon. Mm. And uh, it's been some of the most successful copy I've written. We've sold that workshop out twice now at uh, $10,000 a ticket, twelve attendees at each event and it sells out fast. And so my, it's not available now, so I'm not trying to pitch that, but I'm trying to say the, the inspiration um, factor, when you, when you get a headline that makes your bell ring, you think that's it. 
my encouragement to you is run with that and pour out your copy while you're in that state. Because when you're in that excited state and that seems like a brilliant idea to you, that has a half-life. It only lasts so long. Mm-hmm. And if you wait, it'll go away. And you'll start, your brain will start killing the idea. Your headline there was a question. Is a question a great way to... It's a terrible idea. I, <laughs> I tell people not to do that. <laughs> uh, because there, it's like when they train you to be an attorney... Um, they teach you don't ever ask a question in court that you don't, you're not certain you know what the answer is going to be. And for heaven's sakes, never ask a yes or no question. Well, my question violates both those things. So what do you do with that? Writing copy is um, part science and a, a large part art. And I used to hesitate to say that because it makes it sound elitist, but it's not. I think everybody has the creative side within them. Mm-hmm. But one thing that I, the biggest distinction I've made in the last year is that 80% of the sales copy process is about connection, emotional connection with your audience, 80%. I'd say 15% is about facts and information. And so that leaves, by my math, 5%. And so I'd say 3% of that is the offer. And 2% is whatever urgency you have about the offer. So if you look at that scale, I mean, 80% connection. That's knowing your market, knowing their needs, knowing their pain, knowing their desires, what keeps them awake at night, knowing how to talk about it, being able to describe it better than they can describe it themselves. And when you can do that, as Jay Abraham said, they feel like you already have the answer. You must, you know the problem so well. those who are struggling with how to connect emotionally with their customers or their prospects, if you were working with somebody, let's say somebody hires you, Ray, for copywriting, what are some questions that you might ask them to help them tell that story? Well, if I was working with somebody who was having trouble connecting emotionally with their customers, we would sit down in their office and I would say, okay, do you have some phone numbers of some customers? Let's call them. And I would want to talk to the customers and record those conversations and, and try to get customers who are happy and also customers who are not happy with what they've bought from you in the past or with their status as it relates to the problem that they experienced, which caused them to buy to begin with, and let them do most of the talking. Uh, a better way to do this is to like throw some kind of open house and just have people listening carefully for phrases that come out of the lips of your customers and paying attention. There's nothing that will connect you to customers like being with them in person. Mm -hmm. No survey, no, no uh, demographic data, no psychographic data. None of that will work as well as being with them in person. And um, the next piece of advice I would give to that person is if you, if you feel like you know quite a bit about your customer, I would encourage you to do something called the instant empathy exercise. That doesn't sound like hype at all, does it? <laughs> um, sit down, close your eyes, and imagine yourself living through the customer's day. Your perfect customer. If you have an ideal perfect customer or avatar, as some people call it, um, imagine you're them and you wake up in the morning. And I mean, go into this in vivid detail. Imagine what kind of smells you smell, what kind of sounds you hear, who's in the bed with you. Um, Is the dog in the bed? Is the dog on the floor? Do you have a dog? Do you hate dogs? Is the bedroom messy or neat? Is it beautiful or shabby? What's the first thing you do when you get up? No, after you do that. Like, then do you brush your teeth? Um, What do you have for breakfast? What kind of car do you get in? Is the house noisy when you leave? Is it chaotic? Is it peaceful and tranquil? Um, what route do you take to work? Do you hate your boss when you get there? Are you the boss when you get there? Do you still hate the boss when you get there? Go th- and try to come up with every smell, sight, sound, sensation, emotion. Just build this huge imaginary day all the way until they get home and go to bed. And if you've done the exercise and you've done it well, you've done it with your eyes closed, you've imagined it vividly, you've gone overboard, you've exaggerated, made it silly in places sometimes, and you come, you open your eyes and you immediately start writing your copy. I don't know why this works. 
but it's like you became a tuning fork that's tuned to your customer. And things will come out of you. I don't mean to sound too spooky, but things will come out of you that you didn't know you had inside of you. And those are the things that will connect with your customer like nothing else. They'll, they'll have the reaction, it's like he's been reading my mind. Or that's exactly how I feel, but nobody's been able to put it into words before. That's what doing that exercise will do for you. The instant empathy exercise. I like that. That would be a fun challenge for all of us to do. I need to give credit where credit is due. I got that technique from Brian Keith Voiles, who is one of the best copywriters I've ever known. And he partnered with an investing firm to write all their copy. And he stopped being a copywriter. And he lives in a mansion in Salt Lake City or something like that now. Hmm. Yeah. Well, thank you for that. Thank you, Brian. To continue this, I'd love to talk about, first of all, I do want to get into at some point in the conversation, but perhaps before we finish up, for those who are interested in hiring a copywriter, how might we find one that makes sense for the kind of page that we're trying to build? Because I'm at a point now where I could probably hire out some copywriting for the work that we do. And there's a lot of options. There's a lot of people. How do we know who's best? So we'll get into that in just a moment. But let's continue on down the sales page. So we got the headline and you know a lot of the other components. From, from, from there, how do we start our paragraph writing? Where do, we, where do we go from there? Do we go from there to the problem? Because I know some pages I go to and then they start telling their story, but the story doesn't happen until later. It's just, again, one of those things that you could start anywhere, but what does Ray Edwards recommend? Well, I recommend you start, as always, with the customer and with their problem that they're experiencing right now. And so one of the techniques I love to use is uh, something that Gary Halbert, I think, pioneered, as far as I know, the late, great copywriter Gary Halbert. And it's, I call it the if-then lead. Um, and it starts like this. If you have been struggling to lose weight, if you have tried every pill, potion, and lotion, and exercise machine on the market. If you are tired of yo-yo diets and gaining all the weight back, if you're tired of feeling ashamed, if you're tired of trying one supposed miracle answer after another, and you wish somebody would just tell you how to get healthy and thin, then this page is for you. Here's the story. So it's if, then, this is for you, here's the story. I like that, and you basically just cover all the the points that you've heard in your research at that point, right? Yes. That's very powerful because then you're just regurgitating what you know they're going through. And when they assume that you know what's going on, they know that you likely have a potential solution, right? Exactly. And so the, the, with the more detail you can describe their problem and the more accurately and the more of their language you can use, the more affinity and belief they have in your solution. So um, I have in our course, maybe this will help. I kind of have a structure that I walk people through called the 12 steps on the path to purchase. It's the buyer's journey. So it's really based on the hero's journey. Joseph Campbell's work, the hero of a thousand faces. We've Mm -hmm. most of us heard that ad nauseum, but um, I have mapped it over the sales letter. So, It starts with the first step is the ordinary world. That's what we're just talking about, the problem. Your buyer lives in the ordinary world, and within that world, something is not perfect. There's a problem, and that's why they were looking for your page when they found it. And then the second step is to paint the dream situation of paradise. So you describe to them what life would look like if they could solve this problem. If you could just solve your weight problem, you would not be ashamed to take off your shirt at the swimming pool. Um, If you could just solve your income problem, you wouldn't be so frightened when you go to a restaurant that your card is going to be declined because you don't have enough money in your account to pay for it. And so then um, step three is the guide appears. And that is us. We're the guide. And uh, Nancy Duarte and Don Miller are two great thinkers in this field who both, they use the same analogy. They say that if you're looking at the Star Wars movies, you're not Luke Skywalker. You're Yoda, um, which most people don't think of as the role they'd like to be in, but that's the role that we play. And then you get into telling your story. So we're 
we're a good third of the way through the copy now before you start telling your story of how you found the solution, whether you found it yourself or you found it through an affiliate product or whatever the method is, the mechanism that you found that solves the problem. And you go into, ideally, you're able to tell a story that includes what we call in the world of fiction writing, try-fail cycles. Because nobody, nobody's impressed by Superman. He's invulnerable. He can fly. Bullets bounce off of him. Of course he's going to win. Big deal. That's why he had to have kryptonite, because he had to have a weakness. He had to try things and fail, and it had to look like he might ultimately fail. But then we want victory. I mean, we definitely want somebody who solved the problem. Nobody wants a fitness trainer who's 60 pounds overweight. So ultimately, your, your struggle has led to a place of victory. You describe that, and then you give the transformational vision. That's step six. I actually have a chart that shows all this. I'd be happy to share it with you if you'd like. That'd be great. We'll post it in the show notes. Um, and so the transformational vision is letting them see what the solution looks like. And this is like the magic of the P90X commercials because they spend like 80, 70 to 80% of their time is showing the transformation that people undergo and they show different people, different body types. So it, what we're all looking for is somebody who looks like us, mm-hmm. somebody who looks like me now, and this is what he looked like 90 days later. That's what I want. That's the transformational vision. And then the offer is step seven. And, and this is the, the components of the sales letter stacked up in order. Um, this is where you describe the components of the stuff that you're giving them. Yes, the, the units in this course, the modules in the course, the worksheets. But you're describing it in terms of what transformation each one of those things will bring you. And then step eight is proof where you offer testimonials and third-party endorsements and proof that your stuff works. Then there's something we haven't talked about at all, which is value justification, step nine. This is where you prove that your solution is worth more than you're asking for it. And my rule of thumb is I like to find a way credibly without being hypey or overly salesy is showing how your solution is five to 10 times more valuable than the investment it takes to get it. And it's not too tough to do because the element you have is once they buy it, they have it and they have time to realize, to, to reap the return. And then step 10 is risk reversal. This is the guarantee. This is, I'm taking the risk. You're not, especially with digital products. Because I like to tell people, I, I'm a big proponent of speaking the obvious truth that nobody wants to talk about. Mm-hmm. So I will say to people, well, you buy my digital course, you could rip me off. You could download all the stuff and then ask for a refund. Some people do. That's okay because most people are honest. Most people won't do that. And I believe we give enough value that you won't even be tempted to do that. So I'm not really worried about it. I'm not going to let a few bad apples spoil the whole bunch. Well, that makes a lot of sense to people because they realize it's true. And then step 11 is offering tipping point bonuses. These are, this is a gift you give to incentivize the purchase now. I think people over bonus. I really strongly recommend you don't like offer 12 different bonuses. Um, maybe one, no more than three, but they need to complement and enhance the value. Ideally, this is the perfect bonus. The perfect bonus is one that people say, I would pay that whole price just to get that thing. Mm. That's how you know you've got a great bonus. Like if you were doing a course on social media marketing and you had the, the world's coolest social media marketing publishing calendar in the form of a spreadsheet, and people looked at that and they were just salivating to get their hands on that. And you said, we'll give you this as a bonus if you buy the course. You'd sell a lot of courses just to get that spreadsheet in the hands of buyers because they want it that bad. And then step 12 is the invitation to buy where you just ask them to buy. And those are the, the building blocks that the pasture framework is lies underneath it. Mm-hmm. But those are the building blocks the way you stack them up on the page to get people from, I got a problem, to... I found a solution. I'm going to give you my money and I know you're going to help me. Wow. Thank you. And we'll definitely have a link to the uh, resource that you just mentioned that highlights all those things. A couple of questions. Number one, on price justification, where you're trying to show that what you are selling is worth five to 10 times more than the price you're asking for. How might you do that? Would it be juxtaposition versus other products that exist in the market or 
other ways that people can get that same information that's a lot more expensive or the yes. outcome? It's, it's all those things. It's juxtaposition. It's comparing it to other solutions. It's um, showing them like one common and powerful way to do this is to say, look, you could learn all this on your own. You could Google it all and figure it all out like I did, but it took me 10 years and I spent $300,000. I'm just saving you all that time and money. So mm. why not benefit from my experience instead of trying to go out and have your own? Um, so, and then if you've got some unique tool uh, that really multiplies the effectiveness of your method or what you're teaching or the, the software that you're selling or, or whatever the case may be, mm-hmm. and it's really helpful if you have something unique that makes it slightly different from any other product of its kind. Some sort of unique selling proposition in the product itself, you're saying? Yes. Yes. Like in your case, um, when you teach people about affiliate marketing, the unique feature you have that nobody else has is Pat Flynn. I mean, how long have you been doing this? Nearly 10 years. And how long before you sold a product about doing it? How long have I sold a product? Eight years. Yeah. So unlike most people who have never done any of this stuff and they start selling stuff on how to make money on the internet... You built a business for 10 years, eight years, and then you began teaching people how you did it. That's unique. What about the people in the audience who are like, well, I don't have 10 years of experience, but I have this product. I know it's helpful. There are other products like it in the market. I I guess I must be screwed. (laughs) (laughs) But, But you're not because... Here's when, when I was first writing copy and that's how I made all my money was writing copy for clients. Um, I was really successful and it almost killed me because I was working about a hundred hours a week taking on so many clients and I raised my prices and they just kept coming and I was paying a couple of mentors at the time to advise me and we got on a group call one day and I told them my problem. I said, this is killing me. I think I'm going to go get a job. This is not fun. And they said, well, you need to start teaching people how to do what you're doing instead of doing it. And my response was, well, there's already a dozen courses out there that teach people how to write copy. And I, I named them. And I said, so basically what you just said, I'm screwed. There, nobody wants to hear from me. And one of my mentors, a guy named Alex Mondosian, said, Ray, why do you think there are new diet books that come out every week? Do people not understand how to lose weight? Or are they looking for a unique voice, a unique angle? Why do new rock bands make music every year? Isn't there enough music in the world? Do we really need another rock album? Or is it because people are looking for a fresh new sound? He said, these were the magic words. He said, Ray, there are people for whom your voice is the only voice they will ever hear about this. And if you stay silent, you have robbed them. So powerful. Yeah, it's, it's true. It's just tough when you're in the weeds and you're working on this and you see all these things. I mean, the initial reaction is to pull back and to assume that you're going to fail. And, you know, that's a whole other conversation related to the mindset that has to be there before you even can, you know, put your sales page up and have the confidence to sell. It's partly why I love to promote, like what I talk about in Will It Fly, the validation processes and all those things to kind of get the confidence, to get the testimonials and and all the things that you might need for a public facing sales page uh, down the road, which, which is great. Um, Another question I had, and then I want to shift to when we hire a copywriter. Um, the last question I have is, is step 12 is the offer and the request to buy, essentially, the, the, the buy button on the sales page. Uh, is that the only place the buy button should be? This is more of a technical question. I've seen pages where the button is after every section whole 12 of those sections and sometimes it's you know a, a third of the page two-thirds of the page and then at the very bottom um another one has one where it's sticky the entire time you're scrolling down is there a, is there a best practice there or does that not really matter if you have great copy well i think it varies from product to product and market to market so you know the ultimate marketer's cop out is you should test that <laughs> uh, but i i think um in general until you've made the case for your product and its value, I think it's too early to introduce the buy button. Now, if you've been going through an educational marketing approach 
education-based marketing, which is a lot of what you do. You teach a lot. So there's a lot of trust built up. So by the time you get ready to offer a product, you, unlike other people that we know and respect who are doing a great job, you have a different relationship with your audience. They're ready to buy the moment you say, I have a product coming out. I mean, you've got, you, pro- you probably have people who've told you, I'll just give you my credit card number and whenever you make something, send it to me. Um, so if you're in that kind of position, I think you can afford to put the buy button at the top of the page. But for most people, I think the answer is wait until you've made your case. There are certain things that your reader or your viewer needs to understand and agree with before you can lead them to the conclusion and say, therefore, you should buy this product. And if you introduce a buy button before you've led them through that logic chain, I think that's generally a mistake. Now, after you've done that, that could be around step seven or eight. Then I think it's fair to put the, and and wise to put the button after every one of those sections. That makes sense. It might be the testimonials that help them go over the fence, or it might be the things that are in the, in, in the course itself that might do it, or it might be because it's the last button. So yes. Wonderful. To finish off here, let's talk about, so Ray, I'm looking to hire a copywriter. I'm speaking for my audience and also myself perhaps, but I'm looking to hire a copywriter who, what kind of person should I look for? How do I even begin to find a person who could do the copy for me when it is such a personal one-to-one experience for myself to write for my audience, but now I'm hiring somebody else to do that who doesn't even know me or my brand yet. I don't even, how do I even begin? Yeah. Um, this is a really tough question and it's one that I, I used to wince every time I heard it because I didn't have a good answer. Uh, I would tell people, and these are all true, uh, word of mouth, ask your friends, look to your audience, see if there's a good copywriter in your audience who already gets you, who mm-hmm. loves your stuff. Um, that's probably the best resource you have. Uh, but that involves having enough courage to write to your audience and say, I'm looking for a copywriter who really loves what we do. If you're that person and you give them some instructions to follow and you walk them through whatever your hiring process is, hopefully you have an intentional, well-thought-out process that weeds out the non-starter candidates. Um, beyond that, you you need to look for someone who has worked for other people has proven that they deliver what they promise, that they deliver it on time, that they deliver it with a certain level of quality, that they're willing to work with you after they deliver to make sure that it continues to work for you or that if it doesn't work the first time out, they'll continue working with you until it does. Um, You need to work with someone who does know something about you. I mean, if you have a conversation with somebody and they don't know the first thing about you, then I think that person is probably off your list Mm -hmm. uh, in most cases. So I say it used to make me wince because I never had a good answer um, until we're, we're just getting ready to launch um, an endorsed service provider page on my website. And these are copywriting apprentices that I have trained, that I have paid to write copy for me, that I've approved their copy and said to other people, you should hire this lady or you should hire this guy because they're good. They worked for me. So I decided to formalize that and we've started endorsing people and we're going to be posting this page. I don't get any money for this. Um, when, when you hire one of these people, I don't get a cut. I don't get a percentage. Um, I'm just connecting people who need one another who are in my sphere of influence, people who need copywriters and copywriters who need work. And these people have all agreed to adhere to our code of ethics, which we post on the website. And among the things in that code of conduct are things like I will deliver what I promise. I'll deliver it on time. I'll deliver it to your satisfaction. Um, I'll do the research necessary. Mm-hmm. There's, a, there's a whole list of conduct-related rules that we all agree to and adhere to. And so the one part that I do play in this is I stand behind the recommendation. So if something happens and it goes awry, then uh, I do step in and try to intervene and, and make sure that everything gets made right. We are only just starting this. So frankly, I don't know how that's going to work exactly, but... Um, I wanted to have an answer to this question for people, so that's going to be my answer. And that page should be going live um, by the second week in June. Well, that will be already live at the point at which this episode comes out. So that's a huge resource, Ray. I didn't even know you were doing that, to be honest. And that's great. I mean, it's very smart, and I think going to be very valuable 
uh, where might we find that page? If you go to rayedwards.com, it'll just be in the navigation bar. It'll say ESPs because endorsed service provider is too big of a word to put in the navigation bar. Mm -hmm. So we're calling them ESPs. Nice, Ray. Thank you so much for all of this. Super helpful for myself and I know everybody else listening too. Uh, So rayedwards.com is where everybody should go right now. Check out that resource if you need some, uh, some copywriters and also obviously check out Ray's books as well. Uh, the upcoming book, uh, name and subtitle of the book, and perhaps maybe, uh, I, I don't know if you want to share likely when it might come out. The name is Permission to Prosper. The subtitle is How to Serve God, Love People, and Become Rich Beyond Your Wildest Dreams. And the publication date is March of 2019. Sweet, man. Congrats. Looking forward to it. We'll definitely push it out and, and help people... Uh, help people find it when it does. But Ray, thank you so much for your time. Appreciate you as always. And we look forward to chatting with you next time. Thanks, Pat. Woo, that was awesome. Wow, Ray, thank you so much for coming on and sharing all of your wisdom as always. You can find him at rayedwords.com and also check out his new book coming out soon, Permission to Prosper. We'll have all the links that you need in the show notes for that and more if you go to smartpassiveincome.com slash session 326. Thank you once again for listening all the way through. I look forward to serving you next week. we got a lot of great content coming your way, so make sure you subscribe to the podcast if you haven't already. I appreciate you so much, and I'll see you in the next episode. Bye. Thanks for listening to the Smart Passive Income Podcast at www.smartpassiveincome.com. So podcasting is obviously a big deal here at SPI, and today I'm so excited to tell you about our newest podcast. Yes, a brand new podcast called Flops. Flops is all about exploring, celebrating, and normalizing failure in the entrepreneurial journey. Every entrepreneur experiences failure at some point, so I love that we're just facing it head on here. And the show is hosted by two members of the team, Karen and Ray, and in it they talk to entrepreneurs who have had stumbles, setbacks, and flat-out failures. These guests are honest and generous with their stories, and I think they offer hope and encouragement for all other entrepreneurs out there because we all experience it, right? We all experience failure. For example, in the first episode, Ray talks to John, who got caught up in a Ponzi scheme. It's a story with twists and turns that will keep you hooked. It's a great story. I highly recommend you check it out. But one thing I love about Flops is that it doesn't dwell on the failure, and it always finds a bright side. I really love it, and I think you will too. So the first season of Flops has already started with new episodes dropping on Wednesdays. You can find it on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, wherever you listen to podcasts. You can also listen at smartpassiveincome.com slash flops. Again, that's smartpassiveincome.com slash flops. I hope you enjoy it.